my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives liberty. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, as we dive into this text this morning from James, the brother of Jesus, we're going to see some things perhaps that are going to prick our hearts and touch our consciences, maybe even convict us a little bit. But Lord, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we want to live in a way that pleases you. And Father, sometimes that requires some brutal self-honesty and some self-reflection. So Father, as we study this text, as I study this text and talk about it, as we read through this text and, and discuss it, I pray that you would reveal to us things that we might need to know and things that we might need to see in ourselves, things that we may be doing well and things that we may need some improvement on and that you would give us the strength and the courage to make the changes that we need to. Lord, help us to be a group of people that reflects the kind of all-encompassing love that you have shown for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's go back and let's unpack a few things in this text. James begins this section, chapter 2. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, which leads us to the obvious question, what is favoritism? What is favoritism? Favoritism is playing 
favorites. Favoritism is treating some people better than other people, especially in regard to superficial differences. Especially in regard to superficial differences. It's playing favorites, treating some people better than we treat other people for no real reason in regard to superficial differences. So here are some examples. James gives us one. He talks about playing favoritism based on the rich and the poor. There are others. We can play favorites based on race or ethnicity, based on gender or age, based on ability or nationality. In any of these things where we choose to treat some people better than other people based on these superficial differences, James says there's no place for that in the body of believers of Jesus Christ. So here is the hard truth that we need to come to terms with. Favoritism is baked in to us, our society, and even our churches. Favoritism is baked into us, our society, and our churches. Most of human history has favored wealthy males. It has. Most of human history has, has been geared towards favoring wealthy males. The poor and women throughout history in just about every civilization known to man, the poor and women and children have got the short end of the stick. Wealthy males have always been the ones with the power and the privilege. I'm thankful For the country that we live in, I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have, but we have to come to terms with the fact that even our own constitution was written by and for white, rich men. Our own constitution was written by and for white, rich men. And and the reason that we know this is because it had to be amended, it had to be changed to include women and people of color. Great things to our Constitution, thankful for it. It has provided a lot of freedoms, but we have to be honest about the fact that there, is, there was favoritism baked in. In the Constitution itself, people of color were regarded as less than human, three-fifths of a person. It was baked into the Constitution. Racism was baked into the Constitution. So was sexism. We had to amend it to allow women the privilege to vote. They were viewed as less than white, rich men. Now, things are better now than they were. We don't have slavery, the kind of slavery that we used to have, right? Women have the right to vote. We've made a lot of progress as a society. We have. Things are better. But the women and people of color and the poor are still disadvantaged in our society. And there are all kinds of statistics to back this up. I won't bore you with the stats here this morning, but trust me, there are all kinds of statistics demonstrating that women, people of color, and the poor are systematically disadvantaged in our society. Our society favors still white, wealthy men. And because of this, because it's baked into our society, because it's baked into our founding documents, because we've been raised with it, it's also baked into us. And because of that, it has worked its way into our churches. Our churches are not immune from this kind of favoritism. To give just one example, how many times have we considered whether or not we should offend somebody because they are a big giver? 
Oh, you don't want to make that person mad. They're a tither. It's favoritism. It's favoritism baked into the way that we do church. Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. Women are still disadvantaged in seminary and in churches, even in, in, in denominations that affirm women in ministry. Women who have been called by God still have a harder time finding jobs as pastors than men do because sexism is still baked into the way that we do church. So this is the hard truth. We have to come to terms with the truth. When you go to the doctor, right, sometimes the doctor gives us hard truth that we have to accept. You are overweight or you have an issue, you have a disorder, and we have to come to terms with the fact with, with hard truth at times. But they tell us that hard truth, doctors tell us hard truth because they want us to get better. But first we have to accept sometimes the hard truth, and then we can start making progress. So this is the hard truth. Favoritism is baked into us, our society, and even our churches. Therefore, we must actively resist favoritism in ourselves, our churches, and our society. In other words, doing nothing is not enough. Doing nothing is not enough. Just acknowledging the fact is not enough. We must actively resist favoritism. This means that we need to do some honest-to-God soul-searching. As we're going to see in a little bit, we are instructed in Scripture to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves. What we need from time to time is a healthy dose, healthy dose, healthy dose of brutal self honesty. Maybe you've met somebody who describes themselves as brutally honest, right? They don't mind telling other people exactly how they see that. Well, sometimes we need to take brutal self-honesty and we need to turn that inward. I need to be able to admit, and this is true, that inside of me I have racist tendencies, Because I've grown up in a society where racism is baked in. I have racist tendencies. I need to actively resist them. I have sexist tendencies because I've grown up in a society that favors men over women. And it's been baked into every aspect of our society. And and it's in me. And so I need to come to terms with and actively resist the sexist tendencies inside of me. I have classist or anti-poor tendencies. Right? When I see somebody on the side of the street who's poor, I sometimes have a judgmental attitude, even though I don't want to and I know that it's wrong. It's still somewhere inside of me, and I need to actively resist that. I have nationalist tendencies. I like to think that because I live in America, America is the greatest place in the world and, and all these things, but, but I need to actively resist that. Now, I'm better than I used to be. Trust me. I've come a long way, but I'm still not there yet, and so I need to turn my brutal self-honesty inward and look at myself and do some introspection and some soul-searching and ask myself, are there still areas where maybe I harbor these various forms of favoritism in my heart? And how do they work out then? If it's in my heart, then how does it work out in my words, in my actions, in my attitudes towards other people? I still have room to grow, right? And this will be the case as long as I draw breath. I'll still have room to grow. 
So James says a little bit later in his letter, he gives the example of the rich and the poor, and he talks about how, you know, it's, it's the rich who are poor, uh, uh, opposing the uh, the, the poor anyway, uh, and that their, their favoritism based on, on wealth is, is not good. And then he goes to this um, universal principle. He says this, James says, if you really keep, really what? Keep. Not really believe, right? Not really agree with. He says, but if you really keep or practice, or live out, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The royal law is the law of the king. The law of the king. As followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, you have made the declaration that Jesus is your true and rightful king, and you have entered into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God basically has one law with lots of application. That one law, love your neighbor as yourself. One law. Easy to remember. Easy to understand. Hard to keep, isn't it? Hard to keep. One law. But James says, if you really keep it, if you really practice it, if you really obey it, if you really live it out, this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that, as, okay, well, but what does that mean? What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? It means do for your neighbor what you would do for yourself. So if you are hungry, what do you do? You feed yourself, right? If you're hungry, you feed yourself. So if your neighbor is hungry, feed your neighbor. If you're thirsty, what do you do? If you're cold, what do you do? You clothe yourself, right? If you have needs, what do you do? You tend to those needs. That's what it means to love yourself. James says whatever you would do for yourself and all at or for your family, we do for our neighbor. This is the royal law. This is, it, this is the very chewy caramel center essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we do for our neighbor what we would do for ourselves and for our family. That we look at everybody else with the same care and concern and compassion and love as we look at ourselves and our family. Now that raises a very, very important question, doesn't it? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, Jesus was asked a similar question one day. He was approached by a lawyer who was trying to trip him up, and the lawyer says, Master, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, well, how do you read it? He says, love your uh, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man comes up with a follow-up question. He says, okay, Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches off, and he tells a story, a story that you're familiar with. It's called the parable of the good Samaritan. And in that story, he flips everybody's understanding of what neighbor is upside down because they all believe that their neighbors were those who lived close by them and who looked like them and who worshiped in the same way as they did. They didn't view their neighbors as everybody else, but a very specific subset of people who thought and looked and believed and lived just like them. And Jesus tells this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he says, Your neighbor is anyone who's in need. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Everyone 
is my neighbor. Let's say this together. Everyone is my neighbor. One more time with feeling. Everyone is my neighbor. This is what Jesus teaches us. This is what was so radical about the message of Jesus in early Christianity. Because Jesus says this over and over. He says, if you only love those who love you, you're just like everybody else. If you only take care of those who can take care of you, you're just like everybody else. And then he flips it. He says, no, no, no. I am calling you to love the people who don't like you, who aren't like you, who don't live like you, who don't live next to you, who don't believe like you. I'm calling you to love everybody the way that I have loved you. So this next slide I'm going to show you, I have taken from a, a, a Puerto Rican pastor and activist. His name is Carlos Rodriguez. He, he really uh, breaks this down for us when he says, love your neighbor. Love thy neighbor means love thy homeless neighbor. Love thy Muslim neighbor. Love thy black neighbor. Love thy white neighbor. Love thy gay neighbor. Love thy immigrant neighbor. Love thy Jewish neighbor. Love thy Christian neighbor. Love thy atheist neighbor. Love thy addicted neighbor. The list could go on and on and on. We don't choose who we love. We love our neighbor. And Jesus says, everyone is our neighbor. This is what it means to keep the royal law of Scripture. So, an observation that you'll probably agree with. Loving our neighbors might be risky, costly, uncomfortable, and inconvenient. If you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the Samaritan who cares for the man along the side of the road who'd been beaten took great risk upon himself to care for that man. He took great risk. The, the, the roads between, you know, in that area were, were notorious for, for robbers, right? The man could have been faking it. He could have been pretending to be injured so that he could rob whoever came to try to help him. It cost him a good deal of money. He took care of him out of his own supplies, put him up in a hotel overnight out of his own finances. It was risky and it was costly. It was probably uncomfortable because he was probably from a different nationality, a different religion. And it was probably inconvenient, right? But Jesus tells this story, the story that we all know, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, you know the phrase, the Good Samaritan. It's come into our common vernacular. Jesus says, this is what it means to love your neighbor. So loving our, risk, loving our neighbors might be risky, costly, uncomfortable, and inconvenient. Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor, asterisk, only if it's safe. Only if it doesn't cost anything. Only if it's not inconvenient. No, loving our neighbor very well might be all of these things, but most importantly, loving our neighbor is right. Loving our neighbor is right. And as followers of Jesus, if you're in this room or watching online, if you're a follower of Jesus, we do what's right regardless of the risk, regardless of the cost, regardless of the comfort or discomfort or the convenience or inconvenience. James goes on. He says, if you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you what? sin. Favoritism, James says, is a sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Favoritism is sin. What that means 
racism is sin. Because racism is favoritism based on race or ethnicity. So there's no room for racism in the body of believers. Means classism is sin. Means treating those who are rich better than those who are poor is sin. To look down upon those who find themselves in the situation where they don't have as much or they're poor, to look down on them and to treat the rich better is sin. Ageism, showing favorites based on age, whether you like older folks or younger folks better, is sin. Right? To treat somebody differently, better or worse, based on their age is sin. Sexism, showing favorites based on sex or gender, is sin. We don't esteem men or women any higher than anybody else. We, everybody, Paul tells us, all are one in Christ Jesus. Nationalism is sin. Because nationalism is favoritism based on nation country of origin. So I want to unpack this one a little bit because you may have heard this term in the news recently, people talking about this. Here's the definition of nationalism from Merriam-Webster. A sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations. So there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism. Patriotism is loving your home. It's loving your country. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with loving your country. It's when you start to love your country more, and especially the people in it, more than you love the people from other countries. That's what nationalism is. When, when you think America first, that's nationalism. America first is a sinful attitude for Christians to hold. So, Every once in a while, we are presented with an opportunity to decide whether or not our allegiance to Jesus is more or less important than our allegiance to America. Sometimes we're forced to choose where our greatest allegiance lies. Nationalism is favoritism, and favoritism is sin. That means that we don't turn away people from other countries from aid and compassion just because they're not from our country. As Christians, we don't think that way because believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, we believe that our primary citizenship is where? Heaven. Paul tells us that as believers, our primary citizenship is in heaven. So if you think about it in that way, we're not actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not actually an American first. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God first and foremost. You are just an ambassador sent here as a missionary. This ain't even your home anyway. It's not my home anyway. So there's no reason for me to treat Americans better than anybody else because my citizenship is in heaven. 
And God doesn't value American lives any more than he values the lives of anybody from anywhere else. And he calls us as his emissaries, as his ambassadors, to make known his love and show his compassion to everybody regardless of where they're from or what they look like. Nationalism is sin. So James concludes this section and he says, speak and act. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. So James says, speak and act like you're going to be judged by that same law. He says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So I've got a question for you. What if our standing with God was defined by our posture toward the marginalized? What if our very standing with God was defined by our posture towards the marginalized? James says we should speak and act as if it was. I'm going to put a real fine point on this. What if God does to us what we do to asylum seekers at the border? James says, speak and act as though we'll be judged by this law. Jesus, in his parable of the sheep and the goats, says that the ones that enter into heaven are the ones who have shown compassion to the poor, the naked, the imprisoned, and the sick. There's no asterisk that says, as long as they're citizens, as long as they're Christians, as long as they entered legally. He said, just show compassion on those who are in need. What if God bases his judgment on us based on how we treat others? James says we ought to live that way. We ought to speak and act that way. So here's the bottom line. Jesus' followers don't play favorites. Jesus' followers don't play favorites. We don't play favorites based on race. We don't play favorites based on age. We don't play favorites based on sex. We don't play favorites based on socioeconomic status, how much people have in the bank. And we don't play favorites based on where people are from. Because we're citizens of heaven. And the gates to heaven are wide Open, whosoever will, whosoever will, may come. So, next we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion here. And one of the only passages in Scripture that actually addresses communion is, is in a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. And it's not a very happy situation that Paul's writing about, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, it's actually, what, what was going on is there were rich believers who were mistreating and excluding poor believers. They were causing division based on, on socioeconomic status, based on class. And Paul has some pretty harsh things to say. So I'm going to read this section to you before we take communion, and I'll tell you why. Here's what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. kind of harsh. 
He's, he's writing to this church in Corinth. He's, I have no praise for you. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. They were meeting together. They were having communion. They were singing songs and pre- teaching the Bible. And Paul says, what you're doing is causing more harm than good. In the first place, he says, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have what? Nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. See, what was going on in in ancient cultures, it was common for for people to have these big feasts together, but usually what happened is, is everybody would sort of bring their own food. Or if the food was provided by the host, the host would give more food and better food to those who were rich and less food and poorer quality food to those who were poor. And so there was distinctions among class in ancient feast making. And this is what had crept its way into the the early church's practice of the Lord's Supper. There was distinctions being made between those who had... And so those those who were slaves and didn't have much would show up to the Lord's Supper, and they wouldn't have much food, and those who were rich wouldn't share, and they wouldn't share in the best. And so Paul says, because you are contributing to the same divisions that we see in the world, you're not actually having the Lord's Supper. He says, you're, dis- you're humiliating those who have nothing, and in doing so, you're despising the church of God. In other words, what Paul says is, is by the way you're treating other people, even though you're going through the right motions of worship, having communion and gathering together, your meetings are actually doing more harm than good. <clears throat> Imagine getting that letter from your pastor. Right? It'd be better if you didn't even gather, Paul says, because you're fostering the same kind of favoritism that's seen in the world in your body, and there's no place for that in the body. Here's what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Well, we just learned from James that the the sin is not following the royal law, which is not loving our neighbor as ourself. By allowing these divisions based on class, to exist in the church, they were sinning against Christ himself and were guilty of his body and blood. This is pretty serious stuff that Paul is is correcting them on. So Paul gives some instructions. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and who's the body of Christ? We are. The church is. Not discerning the body of Christ is mistreating fellow believers. It's allowing favoritism to exist in the church. That's what Paul's talking about here. And when you do that, he says, you eat and drink judgment on themselves. 
This, he says, is why so many are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So one of the only passages in Scripture we have about communion is Paul correcting the Corinthians for partaking in the Lord's Supper while allowing favoritism to exist in their midst. And he says, this is not a good thing. He says it's causing more harm than good. So in this church, we practice open communion. I believe that the table of the Lord is open to everyone. So you don't have to be a member of the church, right? I don't even think you have to be a follower of Jesus. I believe Jesus invites everyone to his table, and by partaking, you may decide you want to be a follower of Jesus. But for for those of you who are, before we take in the supper today, I want you to, to take just a moment to really examine yourself. As I examine myself and I ask, is there any favoritism in me? Do I have attitudes of favoritism regarding race or age or gender or sex or nationalism within me? And if so, I, before you come up and take of the bread in the cup, I'd, I'd encourage you to just privately to yourself say this prayer. It's on the screens. Forgive me, Lord, for my favoritism. You showed me grace when I didn't deserve it. Help me show that grace to others. Give me your eyes and your heart for the people I have trouble loving the way I should. Amen. And so if this this sermon has pricked your conscience, maybe, if it's maybe convicted you a little bit, as, as, as you realize maybe some of the attitudes that you have towards some group of people is not in line with how believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ ought to think and live and believe, I'd encourage you to, to say this prayer before you come up and partake of the body and bread of the Lord, because I don't want you to partake in an unworthy manner. And to partake in an unworthy manner is to partake with favoritism and division among us and in our hearts. So I'm going to invite Henry up. I'm going to say a prayer. When the prayer is done, we're going to play a song uh, with the lyrics on the screen. You can just uh, sit and listen or watch. You can come up when you're ready, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat, examine yourself, pray the prayer if you need to, and then when the song's done and you feel like you're, you are content to go, uh, you can just be dismissed when the song is done. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that is truth. I thank you for preserving this letter from James, Father. As, as, we can, as we can see, favoritism has been around for a really, really long time. It's baked into our, our very cultures and society. It's in us. It's in our churches. But God, you have called us to something better. You have called us to something greater. You have called us to, to this sense of, and this place of unity and love. And God, I just pray that you would help us to... to Take a step out and away from the favoritism that has been baked into us, that you would help us to overcome that through your spirit within us. I pray, God, that you would give us your eyes for the people around us who aren't like us in whatever way. Father, I I, I pray that you would forgive me for my favoritism, from where I've shown it in the past and, and maybe where it still is in me, that you would reveal it to me if it's still there and help me to get better. Because, Lord, you have shown me grace when I didn't deserve it. When I was still your enemy, you loved me anyway. 
Help me to show that grace to others. Father, give me your eyes and your heart for the people that I have trouble loving the way that I should. And do the same for these people here. In Jesus' name, amen.